Um, just let everyone know, we'll be about an hour. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a hitch there, so we might run another five minutes if you have five minutes at the end. Um, so yeah, so just uh, just a quick introduction for myself. My name is Bruce Rose, and I run Alcohol Recovery Scotland. Um, I first heard about the Sinclair Method about two years ago when I watched your TED Talk, Claudia. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I've admitted this to you in the past. I got halfway through it and I switched it off. <laughs> yeah, and too good to be true. <laughs> absolutely. And the reason for that was my background was in alcohol and drug rehab management. And I spent a lot of time working in abstinence-based programs until I started looking a bit further into it and the science behind it all and watched a lot more of your videos. Um, I started to realize the, just the effect and the, the success that it does have. So um, I'd rather you did most of the talking tonight. So could, could you just run over a little bit about how you got involved with TSM and, and how it works is probably a good place to start. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm going to start further back than I normally do in most uh, most chats, including my TED Talk, to explain something that if there's any um, prescribers or physicians out there, they might want to look for in patients. And that is, um, when I was a child, I had what's called erythromonia, which is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder where you count everything. And I knew that this wasn't normal. So I was cognizant of the fact that that was abnormal, that my brain was not like other people's yep. because my brothers didn't count and my parents didn't count and none of my friends counted. So I, I was already self-aware enough to know that something was wrong. And I was aware of who I was before that obsessive compulsive disorder happened. And after it left, I felt free. So I knew what a disorder of the brain felt like. I want to start with that. Yep. And that'll make sense further down the line. So as I grew up, um, I have alcoholism on both sides of my family, mother and father. Both of not my parents, no, but my grandparents, yes. My grandfather specifically. And my brother has addiction issues. Had. Well, he's in recovery. So I was a normal drinker. And then I became a heavier drinker. And as I explained in my TED Talk, um, once I stopped drinking, because uh, people were bringing it up, um, I then became a binge drinker. The issue for me with 12-step programs were because I had felt what a brain disorder feels like as a child, I didn't believe that reading passages from a book written in the 1930s by a couple of alcoholics would actually change my brain. I was really, I wasn't being obnoxious about that. I just thought it was absurd that I could sit in a room with a bunch of fellow alcoholics and talk and suddenly my brain was going to be magically switched back like it was when I was a kid. So I also had surgeons and genetic engineer brother and, and researchers. My grandfather was a cancer researcher. I had a lot of science in my life. So it just didn't make sense to me to try to pray this away, even though I was praying ever since I was a child, just as a form of meditation. Um, I had nothing against the religious aspect of it. I had nothing against really the camaraderie or the peer support aspect of it. I just didn't think it was a medical fix for my brain. I was grateful when my OCD just disappeared on its own, but I really didn't think my alcoholism was going to just poof away and it was getting worse. So I did try rehab. I tried hypnotherapy. I tried cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I did try AA. I tried... Um, a myriad of things that just always led me back to relapse because the compulsive thoughts of alcohol never left my brain. The compulsive 
just overwhelming cravings and insidious thought mechanisms is what was really producing this desire to drink. And I knew that if I couldn't get rid of the thoughts, just like I couldn't get rid of counting every step I took as a child or every stone or every tree, I would be overwhelmed for the rest of my life with, with thoughts about alcohol, regardless of whether I was sober or drinking. It was the same thing because when I was sober, it was, I can't drink, I can't drink, I can't drink. And when I was drinking, it was, where's the next drink? Where's the next drink? Or I have to recover from this binge. Or my, so alcohol was all consuming, just like counting was when I was a child. So after my last uh, uh, really bad detox, because when I hit about 38, that's when I decided to go sober. So when I was about 38 years old, people were saying, oh, you drink too quickly and, and we're finding lots of bottles in your recycling bin and, and, and people, you know, my, my behavior was obnoxious at times. I cried and I laughed too loud and, you know, I was the, the, the drunk girl at holiday parties with my family and, and it wasn't fun. For anybody. So I decided that I would just quit. And as we know now, and as I know now, that caused what's known as the alcohol deprivation effect to occur, where your brain is, is for three, usually three or four months was my honeymoon period of abstinence. And then after that, my brain is literally starving and all, all consumed with the notion of getting more alcohol because it has been fed. The neural pathways are enlarged. Every time I drank, from the age of 15 until 38, when I stopped, every time I drank, I was strengthening those neuropathways, strengthening the memory, and, and really rewiring my brain to be addicted or dependent on alcohol. So when I would stop and have this glorious three to four months of sobriety, suddenly everything felt great, and then the obsessive thoughts would start again. Oh, I can have a drink because I'm not an alcoholic. I had four months of sobriety. That's the insidious nature of addiction is, is I always refer to it as either the monster or the lizard brain. There's this, there's this little trickster in your brain that is constantly telling you the wrong things. It's telling you that you don't have a problem because you've proven yourself that you can be sober. Um, it's telling you to buy the bottle because heck, you're, you'll only have one glass and then you end up drinking the whole bottle. And it's this vicious cycle. And my life was literally broken down into how many binges did I have this year and how long did each one take to recover from? It was not a quality life at all. You know, I would have maybe eight months of sobriety, but I would have to change my entire life. I could not be around certain friends that drank. I couldn't go to a pub. I couldn't travel. I couldn't because there was alcohol everywhere in our society. And every single time I saw some sort of trigger, I would get back into the cyclical nature of obsessive thoughts about alcohol. So my sobriety was not a happy sobriety. And I'll be completely honest about that. The first few months always usually were, but that's from the relief of not being in withdrawal and detox, frankly. You know, <laughs> detox and withdrawal from alcohol is so brutal. And my detoxes, because I went cold turkey, I never tapered, were horrible. Hallucinations, uh, tremors, um, and what, what ended up uh, accumulating in my very last horrible detox from alcohol in 2009, where I had to go to a medical detox. So here was my history from the age of 38 to age of 43 in 2009, where I finally went to a medical detox. And when I was in there, um, I found a, a flyer for naltrexone in the shot form Vivitrol. 
And I went home and I never heard of it, of course, and I researched it and and the shot said that there was a lot of side effects, a lot of things like, you know, it was just not good. Depression, weight gain, malaise, uh, loss of joy, you know, things that you hear from every medical warning label. But still, I, it just didn't sound very appealing to have a medication in my system 24 hours a day. But at that point, I was willing to do anything. So I did call to try and make an appointment to get the Vivitrol shot. And then I did further research. And I don't know how, maybe it was divine intervention after all, but Dr. Roy Escapa's book popped up when I was doing a Google search, and that was The Cure for Alcoholism. Um, and I ordered it immediately. They had some free pages I could read, almost 20-something pages of the book. So I quickly read it while I was waiting for the book to, to, be, um, to come. And I went ahead and I ordered naltrexone from an Indian pharmacy. I had no choice. I called my doctor and I said, I'd like to come in and get a prescription for naltrexone. And they pretty much hung up on me. <laughs> and so I ordered the medication and I knew that it would take a long time. And in the meantime, I remained sober. So by the time the medication arrived, I had been about three months sober. And uh, it was really a Russian roulette moment in my life. I thought, you know, do I want to try this thing that no one's ever heard of? Do I want to try this thing that my 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 general practitioner refuses to to prescribe to me? Do I want to take a risk of drinking again? But I knew in my heart, I knew that there was no way in hell that I was ever going to remain sober for the rest of my life. I was 43 years old. I could live potentially to be 93, 103. There was no way I was going to get 50, 60 years of sobriety under my belt. I knew that. So I was either going to try this or I was going to die in, during my next big binge. I was going to stroke out. I mean, I knew this because I, I, I literally, the, that last detox that I had, the reason why I went to a medical detox is I, I went into, um, you know, I started to have seizures. So I, I, I lost body function. I couldn't walk. Uh, and it scared the hell out of me. And so I knew that, that this was literally my only choice. I had tried everything. I had thrown every dollar I had at this disease of the brain. I had tried everything from vitamin therapy to, I mean, you name it. I, I tried everything. So that said, um, I did try TSM and it was remarkable by the time the medication arrived. Um, and I took it the first time I felt a distance, uh, that was the, the sort of immediate response that a lot of people have. So a lot of people will take the, the medication in that particular time, the first time or the first three, two or three times, they'll say, oh, I can't even finish the glass. But slowly but surely, if they don't change their habits or if they don't address underlying problems, their drinking can and will, decrease, will increase back to normal levels if they, if they don't combine everything. And we'll talk about that a bit because I do want to get to the whole aspect of recovery on TSM. But my personal experience um, has been that I stayed on uh, TSM and the first four or five years were glorious. And then I got lazy and I didn't do any of the, the, the work, as they say, on childhood trauma because I was, I was extremely um, myopic in my, my belief that my addiction was strictly biological. And I didn't take into consideration that I had lost a brother at eight years old who was killed by a drunk driver and that I was repeatedly raped as a child by our next door neighbor. I didn't take any of that into consideration. I thought, no, that's nothing. I dealt with that. You know, I'm, that's not why I was drinking. I'm drinking because my grandparents were alcoholics. It's biological. 
So I didn't do the work and instead I, I jumped into advocacy and I started coaching people by 2010 and I was writ, written a book uh, by 2012 that was released. By 2014, my documentary, One Little Pill was released and by 2013, I had opened up C3 Foundation. So there was no recovery time for Claudia as far as really going deep. And and when I did do cognitive behavioral therapy, I I unfortunately worked with somebody who had no experience in in substance use disorders, so that really wasn't ideal. And I and when I look back, I would say that in the beginning of my journey, I certainly should have worked on on issues that I had, parental issues and feelings of, of you know just all of, all of this stuff that that transpired in my childhood, which probably resulted in the OCD because I couldn't control my environment, so I counted everything. <laughs> Same thing as anorexia; you can't control your environments. So you starve yourself because you can control your caloric intake. So there's definitely intertwining of this with, with a lot of the women that I work with. Food disorders and alcoholism really go hand in hand, as do hormonal issues and alcohol use disorder. Okay, so back to that. Um, so I stayed on it four or five years. It was great. And then I got a little bit lazy about it. And I was really uh, working with a lot of people getting burnt out. And I didn't comply a few times. And I relearned the, the misuse very quickly. I had small relapses, not major ones. I'd just get back on TSM. But every time I got back on it, I noticed that the medication affected me a little bit differently. Because I had been using it so consistently, it was sitting in the back of my brain and I didn't really notice it. And it was wonderful. So I really encourage people who start TSM to stay on TSM and don't fool around with it. Because when you finally get the medication to sit back there and it's in the background all the time, you won't have the side effects. You won't have to go through learning the side effects again and it won't, it won't adversely affect you at all. So I, you know, that's why we go on and on and hammer compliance through the heads of the people that we work with. Compliance is everything, mindfulness, and the rest of the stuff comes in there. But if you don't comply, it's not gonna work. So when I didn't comply, um, obviously I would relearn the, the, the heavier drinking. I didn't have a binge like I did in 2009, but you know I had some bad ones. And then in 2017, I had an incredibly bad one, which I've been very transparent about um, after Dr. Sinclair passed. And that was just a nightmare. And that leads me to today where, um, I've been abstinent by choice for a year and a half. Uh, and that is not because TSM wasn't working. It was because with everything else going on in my life, alcohol just simply no longer played a part in my life. And people will say, well, you know, you, you, how could TSM work if the face of TSM <laughs> didn't do it correctly? It's because I had not dealt with my own issues in life. I hadn't dealt with everything. And so what I did, it, I did it sort of, half arsed backwards, if you would say. I did the biological aspect in the beginning and that certainly worked. And then kept going back on naltrexone because it worked for me to stop the compulsive thoughts of alcohol and also the binge drinking. But then I had to start to work on all the underlying issues of why I drank and my relationships with people in my life. And also I had to cut my workload. My, I was getting what's called therapy burnout. I was, I was working for free. I was giving all my time for free. People had my home number, my cell phone number, my email address, and I would get three to 400 emails from people all over the world saying, help me. And, I, and I'm, very, I'm, like, I'm very sensitive, so I would take their issues on and sit with them and sleep with them, and it was, it was just killing me. I wasn't working out 
wasn't doing all the things I love to do. So about four years ago, I, I sort of, three to four years ago, I started to reclaim my life. And that was, I changed my home phone number. <laughs> so nobody had it. Um, I, uh, last year I stopped receiving the emails directly from the C3 Foundation website because it was just, it was too much. And it's time for me to take a step back and take care of myself because if the, if, if the advocate for TSM is not <laughs> healthy, then what's the point of showing the efficacy of this treatment, right? So, um, so since then, yes, I, I, I went into, uh, I did a trip um, in 2018 with a girlfriend of mine and I just thought, you know what, I just, I'm going to be doing all the driving, so I'm not going to drink. And then that just carried into the rest of my life. So um, I laugh now because I've, I've, I've been with my boyfriend for a year and a half and he's never seen me take a drink, which is, which is really a kind of a first in, in my life. He's never known me to drink, um, but I'm happily abstinent. And that's a huge difference. And I want to make a really, you know, a, a really strong case for this. You, you cannot be, I can't say strongly enough how important it was for me to be abstinent by choice. And this is my choice to be abstinent. I simply didn't like recovering from alcohol anymore. Uh, you know, a woman in her 50s, you know, everything else that goes along with it, hormonal changes and stuff, it just didn't suit me anymore. I wanted to get in really good shape, alcohol, it was very fattening. So these were all choices, but they were my choice. This wasn't something that somebody told me, you have to stop. I knew that I could drink for the rest of my life if I did naltrexone properly, but I just didn't want to drink anymore. Just didn't fit my life anymore. Didn't fit in my, my dreams and my expectations and and hopes that I that I really wanted because I want to achieve in my life um, taking up bicycling and getting more you know more into trips like that so so I um I've been very very happy the last year and a half and and I know that in the back of my mind um, you know I always can rely on that if a situation arises and I decide someday to drink I can if I do it properly but I'm, I'm at this point, I'm not interested. I'm, I've been happy for a year and a half, but you know, at least I know that there's a treatment that works for me when you do it properly. And that really is the most important thing, I think, to stress to patients that they may say, well, why, don't, why do I have to keep a drink log? I never kept a drink log or attended peer support meetings because these things didn't exist in 2009. Nothing existed in 2009. So now people have all of these beautiful resources. They have C3 Europe, C3 based in, you know, Joanna Doivendord, who's probably on, I think she's here. Hi, Joanna. Um, runs an amazing site and has helped so many people in the UK um, find uh, help with, with uh, naltrexone or nalmaphene. Um, and she has great resources. We have free drink logs. We have free support systems. We have um, forums, Facebook pages. There's no excuse now not to do TSM correctly. It's not like back in my day when there was literally nothing. I didn't even know about keeping a drink log. I just thought you pop the pill and wait an hour. I was so naive in the beginning that I remember going on a trip to France and being paranoid because I had taken the pill and they didn't serve alcohol when I got there. And it had been an hour and a half since I took the pill. And I was panicking, thinking, but I have to drink in an hour. I have to. I have to. That's how, that's how, that's how little I knew, you know, about... Uh, now we know, of course, the peak plasma level is one hour, but you, you're pretty good, you know, for a few hours if you if you don't have alcohol right there. But I think with today's um, 
today's resources and, and all of the videos and the information out there, people can do TSM in the best way possible. And their recovery can be, you know, pretty drama free, to be honest with you, because there's so much support out there. And when I get back, when I think about drink logs, because a lot of people say, well, why should I keep a drink log? It just, it's tedious or I don't, I don't really want to. It's, it's a form of mindfulness, but it's also important that when you look back at the drink log with your patient or whoever you're coaching, if your doctor's out there and your patient comes in with three months of a drink log, you both can see together their improvement. Or you can see when they maybe perhaps drank too much one night and ask them what happened that night. Was it New Year's Eve or did they get in a fight with somebody or were they triggered at work? Then they're using alcohol for the wrong reason. They're using it to stifle down their emotions. They're not using it as a convivial thing to share amongst friends. That's the argument you'll hear with people. I just want to be able to go to the pub and have a beer. That's great. Okay, use TSM for that. But that doesn't mean that coming home after a hard day's work and getting absolutely plastered is a healthy use of alcohol. And we know that or getting hammered before you go meet your in-laws because you can't stand them. That's not a healthy use of alcohol. That's stomping down your emotions. So there's all of these colors and, and, and issues that arise from using the Sinclair method. It's not a one-stop, you know, I'm gonna pop a pill and get 100% better. Although for a lot of people who are simply, you know, biologically uh, prone to, to misusing alcohol, it is the fix. I've had people who have, great lives, wonderful childhoods, great marriages, wonderful jobs, and they pop the pill, they, they comply, and six months later, they're like, okay, I'm sorted, <laughs> you know, and, and they're compliant for the rest of their life, and they drink maybe twice a week, and that's wonderful. Those, those are, I wish everybody was like that, but, you know, we are all human and fallible, and we've all had very, very different life experiences, and our brains are wired differently. I, I find it absolutely fascinating that the when I worked in rehab, the the going cold turkey and the rehab the rehab side of things worked for some people, um, but the when they went cold turkey and when they went through the abstinent based side of it, the craving never left them. And the yeah. one thing I'm noticing with the clients at the moment is the ones who are sticking with it and being compliant. The the difference between the habit and the craving, um, once we get the craving under control with the medication, like you're saying, we can then work on the, the habitual side, the emotional side, the psychological side. Um, but it makes that so much easier when you don't have that constant craving. Yes. Well, this is what I tried to say to my friends in AA. I said, half of you are sitting there thinking about alcohol during a meeting wouldn't it be nice or when you're with your therapist you're thinking oh i'm going to get out of here and i'm going to have a drink because it's bringing up stuff wouldn't it be nice to to get rid of that the cravings and the obsessive compulsive thoughts so you can deal with the rest of the stuff absolutely and also it's very difficult to identify whether it's a genuine craving for alcohol or if it's a knee-jerk response to an emotion or if it's a memory you know, I have memories that pop up once in a while. Like I'll remember my boyfriend will say, oh, let's go to that Italian restaurant. And I'll, I'll go online and look at the menu and I'll see a roaring fireplace and people drinking red wine and, and big, you know, <laughs> big plates of pasta. And I'll remember drinking red wine in a nice environment with a fire going. 
And I'll go, oh, wouldn't that be nice to have a glass of red wine? And then the reality kicks in and I say, no, that's just a memory. That's a memory that came in before alcohol took over your life and almost killed you. So I can now look back and, and understand that that's a memory. That's not a physical craving for alcohol. That was simply a memory. And that's romanticizing what alcohol was in my life because that's what the brain does. It, it doesn't want to remember trauma. So it remembers all the good times. Like people say, oh, I'm never going to have fun again if I can't drink. And I'm like, okay, what you're remembering is, is the champagne at a wedding where you didn't pass out and end up with a stranger or end up getting hurt or have a car accident or DUI because we don't remember those things. Our brain is protecting us by eliminating those memories. What we're rem remembering is just the first couple of drinks and the laughter and everything. I try to assure them that guess what? You can have all that laughter and fun <laughs> with, with a very small amount of alcohol, but let's go back and remember how alcohol ruined your marriage, uh, you know, separated you from your children, you lost your job. Let's remember the big things. Um, as well as the as romanticizing it, you know. So there's so many fears that come into play, and and we 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 rely on alcohol in so many social situations as a social lubricator, but also we think it's our personalities. And I can tell you right now that that I, I'm actually probably much funnier and much more fun to be around, and I'm not drunk, <laughs> you know. But we think that we're the life of the party when we're inebriated, and we think that we're clever, and we, you know, we're telling great stories. And other people are probably saying, "Oh, she's yammering on again." <laughs> so, so with, you know, hindsight is always clearer. But um, you've seen this, I'm sure, with your patients many times, as the grandiose thoughts of alcohol. Right, right, back again. And yeah, it's I, I'm absolutely blown away with the process. Like I said, I, I've spent some time working in abstinence-based rehab centres, and they were good. We, we I've always got to be careful not to knock them. Um, but what completely blows my mind every time I speak to a new client is the peace that they have as they're reducing. Um, once they get the, the craving under control, the, the, the rest of the process, for some it's much quicker for, than others, um, but that whole process seems to be a lot more relaxed and chilled um, and easy to do. Um, have, have you got any suggestions or just for people who are on the program or who are thinking about coming onto the program um, about the best way to work the program? along the lines of compliance that you've already mentioned and, and other things? Yes. Um, through the years, I, I've learned a lot of anecdotal experience from people um, who have done TSM with great motivation, other people that were forced to do TSM. And I find that, obviously, you can't force somebody to comply. So if you have a loved one that's that's suffering and you think this is a good plan for them, let's face it, it it's like antabuse. When I read the side effects of antabuse, I just didn't take it. <laughs> you know, I mean that's so. So if you're not motivated to decrease your drinking, um, then you're not going to comply with TSM. What the selling point of TSM and why it works particularly well with people of any age is these are people who haven't come to terms with why their drinking increased. They don't really understand neurologically about strengthened highways in the, in the brain, super highways. They don't understand what happened, but suddenly they know that they enjoyed their two glasses of wine every night for 10 years. And now suddenly they're drinking a bottle and a half. 
and they don't know why. They don't understand. They're, they're, they're maybe their stresses haven't increased. It's just their habit has become stronger and stronger and stronger. So you have to, you have to really say two things. You don't have to be physically dependent like I was. I was a binge drinker who once I started drinking, I became physically dependent, meaning that I would drink all day in a binge. I mean, I'd wake up and have to drink so I wouldn't go into shakes. Um, you don't have to be that far gone. You can be somebody who is doing this for your health. You know, by reducing your consumption, you're going to be able to be healthier. You're going to be able to enjoy more more activities that are healthy for you. It's good for your weight. It's good for your your mind. We know that even moderate drinking levels change the brain in a detrimental fashion. We know this. Science has afforded us a great look into the human brain, and that has you know really proven that even even small amounts of alcohol can radically change you and make you more susceptible to diseases. But if you're an individual who just isn't psychologically ready to stop, you don't have to. So you can use that selling point of saying, you know what, I'm not asking you to stop. I'm not asking you to give up alcohol. I'm simply asking you, if you want to decrease it, do you think you are motivated enough to take this, this tablet an hour before you have the first drink of the day? And if they say yes to that, and they say, absolutely, if I can still drink and I just have to take this tablet, then wonderful. And then you say, okay, that's the first step. <laughs> the second step is you absolutely have to keep a drink log because we need to look back and see what kind of responder you are, what kind of habits you have. Um, and if they're, you know, if, if they're open for that, then that's, that's great. I would strongly urge somebody to have some form of support a supportive doctor, a supportive addiction specialist, uh, uh, somebody to check in with. I would also urge them, even if they think they don't have underlying problems, to absolutely maybe see somebody like a therapist or a coach once a month. Just check in with somebody once a month. If they can't afford any of these things, I would say utilize the peer support that everyone's offering. We have, there's multiple Facebook pages. There's an online forum called Options Save Lives. There's uh, thrice weekly meetings in the US. Um, Joanna at C3 Europe uh, offers coaching being offered there. Um, and she can certainly advise people where they can get help. Uh, as much help as possible. If I had known to take a deep dive in the very beginning, well, had there been resources when I started, it would have been a whole different game. There were no resources. But I always encourage people, this is your job for the next six months. This is your recovery. This is not something you're doing on the side. This is the most important thing in your life right now. You're gonna work, you're gonna be present, you're gonna be mindful, and you're going to work on doing TSM the best way you can possibly do it. And that means, it's really assessing your family situation with your loved ones. Do your loved, are your loved ones looking at TSM as it's just an excuse to keep drinking? Great, okay, fine. Show them my documentary, One Little Pill, so they, could, they can understand the science behind the Sinclair Method. Have them uh, watch my TED Talk. Give them some, download some information from C3 Europe or C3 in the United States go online and just download some of the stuff and say, look, this is important to me that you understand what I'm doing. I want to make you part of it, but I need you to understand that you're going to see me drinking and that's going to be scary for you, but I have to drink on this method. So there's so many levels. You have to, you have to set up your environment so that you have support. That means if you have a spouse that's been you know, really adversely affected by your drinking, you have to sit them down and say, 
I want to explain what this, this, what this treatment I want to try. And maybe you could even get some professional help like a doctor, like you would do with your patients to bring the spouse in and explain what TSM is in front of someone that they respect and regard as a professional. So that we eliminate this constant thought which people have, which is, oh, this is just an excuse to drink. It's not an excuse to drink. Every drinking session, we hope, is an extinction session. It's a session towards extinction. This is a medical treatment. This is not a fly-by-night thing. And, and, and if people do it correctly, it will work if they respond to naltrexone or nalmefene. In addition to that, so we've got the drink log. We have the support system. We have accountability by checking in with people, much like they did in AA. I'm, I'm a firm believer of, of sponsors. I think that's one of the best things about AA. Um, and in fact, that's why I was trying to launch my TSM Buddy site, because I wanted to have an international worldwide place, almost much like a dating site, where you could just say what you're looking for. I'm looking for somebody to have an alcohol-free night with. And you could hook up with anyone around the world, whatever sex you want, whatever age group you want. And you could do it via text or chat or FaceTime, and you could do it together. Um, that was based on me doing alcohol-free weeks with people who wanted a break from alcohol that were on TSM. So once there's structure in place for you to have somebody to, to, to be accountable for, to, to be accountable to, that's important as well. Then we start getting into real mindfulness, which is the understanding when you do get a craving memory or when it's a trigger from an emotional experience or a hardship or trauma or something like that so that you can identify what that is. You're not just knee jerk every single night saying, oh, it's five o'clock. I'm going to take my pill and drink at six. You have to change your habits. You have to trick your brain into knowing that it is no longer in control. So one of the once once again we get back to that little trickster in the brain. What I like to tell people is it's been in control of you for so long, for so many years. It's the one telling you, sun's going down, time to drink wine. It's wine o'clock. Come on. It's the one that tells you when you go down the shopping aisles at the shopping store, at the marketing uh, stores, you know, that you know, lo and behold, there's the liquor aisle. Yeah, better stock up. It's Friday. All of this is sort of on rote. You're not being mindful about it. You're not thinking it through. So when you get home at five o'clock and you say, oh, it's, it's wine time, sit down and ask yourself, do I really need or want to drink tonight? And why? Why? I mean, I could save myself 700 calories. I could feel fabulous tomorrow by not drinking. What's stopping me from having an alcohol-free night? Why can't I have a cup of tea, enjoy my family, make dinner without having a glass of wine? Am I genuinely physically craving like white knuckling, like all I can do is think about alcohol? Is that happening to me? Or is it just because I do it every night? That's a huge difference. You're identifying a genuine craving or a habit. Well, why did you start TSM in the first place? To break habits. <laughs> you don't want to drink a bottle and a half of wine every single night. You don't want to have a alcohol belly. You don't want to go to bed and wake up at three in the morning because the alcohol has burned off and the sugar has kicked in. You want to change your life. You want to feel better. So you need to identify why am I drinking and do I have to drink every single night? It's a huge difference also between somebody who's physically dependent on alcohol. They are going to have to probably drink every day and they'll taper 
on TSM, which is possible. I'm speaking more to the person who is not physically dependent in this webinar, because I think that's a whole other issue where you need medical help and you really need to taper safely. And Bruce, you know that very well. People who are round the clock drinkers need extra support and extra help. And you need to get the loved ones on board with that because it's a difficult process. It's doable on TSM. I want to make that very clear, but it's far more difficult than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about moderate to heavy drinkers who want to decrease or even heavy drinkers who want to decrease daily drinkers who want to start not drinking every day and the beautiful thing about tsm is it is a dual aspect therapy so the more you the more you have alcohol free naltrexone free days and on those days you engage in good endorphin endorphin producing activities you're going to get these dopamine and serotonin surges that are going to make you addicted to good behaviors um, Joanna and I both, well, she, she got me sort of thinking about bicycling, but I've been now getting into bicycling. And when I did my first, you know, 20, 25 miles, I was like, wow, now I know what they're talking about. And, you know, when I was, when I was first on TSM, I started doing Pilates and unbeknownst to me, I was doing classic TSM dual therapy. I didn't know that I was drinking about three days a week. And I was doing Pilates probably four days a week. And a lot of them fell on my alcohol-free days. I didn't realize I was doing this. It just so happened that way. And when I did the Pilates, I felt such a reward. You know, when I started to break a sweat or when I started to really push some heavy weights, I thought, wow, this feels good. And I didn't know at the time that is TSM. You're decreasing the behavior you wish to decrease and increasing the behaviors you want to increase. It is a beautiful coexisting therapy that feeds each other. It's replacing the drinking with great things in life, nature, making love, eating spicy food, playing with animals, playing with your kids, long walks, exercise, uh, you know, excitement, travel, cooking, things that really get these endorphins popping. And you'll find that life is so much more full and beautiful when your drinking starts to decrease, because let's face it, drinking takes up so much time. The drinking, the buying, the recovery from it, all of that takes up so much of your life that you're gonna find yourself with free time. So you have to tell your patients to be prepared for this because if they've got a bunch of free time on their hands and they have not made a plan, what's gonna happen? They're gonna, they're gonna go right back to default position number one, which is going to the pub and drinking more. We don't want that. We want them to go try wood carving, take up art again, learn a language, join a book club. We want them to go down to the library, take their kids to a park, buy some kites. We want them to have a full rich life, but they have to know that this, this void of time is going to exist because they're not drinking as much. So you have to prepare them for every step of the way and TSM. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's important that information is out there. We've made videos. I, I work with RIA Health. I'm on their advisory board and I've made a, a ton of videos with a, a lovely young lady named Katie Cronin who runs the Embody Daily site. And we have videos that cover this materials, but I think it's also important for providers to have a general idea of how the entire process will go down with their patients and what to look for and what to try to, to stop from happening and what to encourage them to do. It's, I think it's really good that we can um, thank you for all your experiences because I think we're learning from the last 10 years of what, what you've gone through. So, 
Um, <laughs> we've got about 15, 20 minutes left. So if anyone does have any questions, um, yeah. fire them into the questions and answers at the bottom. Um, and we won't get a chance to answer them all, but we'll get through a chunk of them. Um, and it's just to say as well, Claude, I know you've obviously got a big back, background in acting and uh, film and TV and, and, yeah. and singing, I heard the other day. Um, yeah, no, I'm a lousy singer. I don't know why that says that on my Wikipedia page. It's so <laughs> wrong. Um, I, I am quite happy with the book that just came out, Journeys, because it's a compilation of stories from people around the world that have been on the Sinclair Method. And that, that took a lot, that took about six years for me to go from sort of conception to finally getting it published. So that just came out this year. And um, I think it's going to help people understand, uh, you know, that their journey is, is not necessarily a bad one. Um, if things don't go perfectly, you know, to, to exactly the way they want it to, because in that book, you'll find that people have the good experiences, traditional you know, uh, classic extinction experiences. And then they also have the, the relapse due to non-compliance issues, um, including my own story in there. And then you have people who, who you know, just have been on wild rides. And I think that it's great to read stories about other people. Had I read that book once again <laughs> in 2009, I think I would have, I would have felt uh, relief because I would have seen, wow, okay, this is what, these are the pitfalls. This is what to look out for. And, um, and this is what I can learn from other people's experiences because we do, you know, there are people now that have been on it or, or did it eight years ago, nine years ago. There are people that have been on it for a long time now. Um, I, I'm certainly not the person with the longest amount of time on TSM, uh, but I'm, I'm one of the, the old timers. So <laughs> yeah, I hope to teach people through my own experience. Yeah, I've got one question that's come through that says, uh, I'll let you explain it. The, there's an expression that we have in TSM called drinking through the pill. Yeah. Um, could you explain just a little bit about how that works? And... Absolutely. So when you, you've been conditioning your brain all these years to, to, to know that it's going to get a bottle of wine, let's say, every night, or you know, that's what you drink. You drink your four glasses of wine every single night. So your brain is now in control of you and saying, okay, I want my wine. So when you now block that wine with naltrexone, what happens is your brain was used to firing off endorphins. Every time the alcohol hit your brain, it would fire off endorphins and that would keep you going and, and, and enjoying the wine and getting a buzz and all that jazz. Well, now these endorphins are going to pop off uh, the, the, the opiate receptor and they're not going to cling to it. And you're not gonna get that same feeling. It's gonna feel a little bit different. And your brain is gonna tell you that what you need is more alcohol in order to get the same feeling you got without naltrexone. And that's not the truth because your drinking experience on naltrexone from now on, for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, the drinking experience will be different. Now, for example, with me, I drank because I loved the taste of red wine but I didn't lose the taste of red wine on naltrexone. So I was able to still enjoy the taste and the relaxation effects of alcohol. Other people drink specifically because they get such a huge reinforcement from alcohol. Those are the people like the guy in the beginning of my documentary, Steve, who feels that rush at the top of his head and all the way down his body when he drinks alcohol. And that's gone now when he takes naltrexone and drinks on naltrexone. So 
these kind of people will do what's called drinking through the naltrexone. Their brain is telling them, I'm not getting the same reward. I want the same reward, so drink more. It's the only solution that little trickster in your brain has. It's not getting what it wants, so it equates that with not getting enough alcohol. So you will find yourself drinking in order to try and achieve the same feeling you used to get from alcohol before you started blocking the endorphin rush. This is something where mindfulness comes into play because you have to ask yourself, why am I taking another drink? Maybe it's beer. You've had six pints. You're full. You're bloated. You're hanging out with your buddies. Everyone's going home. Why is my brain telling me to drink more? It's because you didn't get the same reward that you did prior to taking naltrexone. So when you're drinking through naltrexone, you have to really be conscious about that aspect of it. And as I've spoken in the very beginning, at some point, the naltrexone might move to the back of your brain and drinking alcohol will be much like it was before naltrexone. And that happens to a lot of people. Other people notice that their, their favorite glass of wine now tastes horrible and they get very upset. Why can't I drink white wine anymore? It tastes awful. And I say, well, <laughs> maybe you have to switch drinks, switch, try cider. Maybe the bubbles and the sweetness will satisfy something that the wine doesn't anymore. We have to, we have to sort of maneuver our way around this. I want to get back to something about um, mindfulness that I just remembered is, is habitual drinkers who are out there, you have to think of it this way. You're patterning your habits and you're ingraining in your brain something that is, that is a ritual. I'm going to pour my beer into my favorite beer stein and I'm going to sit in my favorite chair and I'm going to watch my favorite show. That is now, you're wiring your brain for that behavior. So if you unwire that brain, all right, I'm going to pour my beer into a different pint glass and I'm going to take it outside and sit outside and stare at the trees. You got to change things up. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect the naltrexone to do all of the work. And much like that also applies to drinking through the naltrexone. You have to ask yourself the question, why do I need the third drink? Am I genuinely having a great time with my friends at the pub and everyone's ordering another drink and I want to, I, I, I want to have another pint. Okay, that's completely different than I'm pounding shots because my brain is not getting the same feeling it used to get. That's totally different. In one aspect, yes, you can have the third pint because that's a genuine reason. You know, yes, I've been drinking water, I'm hanging out with my friends, but I really want one more pint before I go home. Okay, that's a legitimate reason. Not I'm going to sneak up to the bar and I'm going to pretend I'm ordering pints for my friends, but I'm going to order two shots of vodka and do it up there because I'm not feeling the same level of buzzness that I'm, that I'm used to. See, so it's really about understanding what we're feeling. And as far as now, there's so much to cover. I mean, we don't even really have enough time because then you talk about second dosing as well for people who drink at lunchtime and then they go carry on into dinner and let's say they took the pill at noon and they took a drink at one and now it's seven o'clock and they're starting to drink wine with dinner and that first dose is wearing off and they find that they're drinking escalating and escalating and by 11 o'clock at night, they're drinking sherry and doing shots because the naltrexone's worn off. So that's a whole nother issue we can save for another time. <laughs> but but yeah, you get the you point. You have to come There's back again then. I, I, I'm happy. <laughs> I could talk about TSM all day, as you can tell. But I want to answer any other questions that are out there. But that is drinking through naltrexone. You're trying to achieve the same feeling you had pre-naltrexone. 
pre-blocking. I always tell people it's like having a condom over, over part of your brain, you know, and when you take the condom off and you drink, well, guess what? You're going to get that high. And that's why you don't want to do that because then you're, you've sort of unleashed the Kraken again. And you don't want to do that. You want to always put him to sleep and make him smaller and smaller and smaller. You want that trickster to shrink up to a little teeny thing. And that's another reason why I don't really like the idea of the word cure. I always tell people you're in remission. You're in remission. That trickster is still on a cellular level. It still exists. That addiction is still in the brain. It's just not awake. It's asleep right now. As long as you're on naltrexone, you are in remission. Much like a diabetic wouldn't go out and eat a birthday cake without checking their blood sugar levels. You don't go out and drink without first taking your naltrexone and waiting an hour or nalmaphene and waiting two hours. Okay, just uh, another quick one that's come in. Um, and I get it a few times from a few different clients. How do you broach the subject with your friends? that you are on TSM with the friends and family and um, yeah. So, Cause obviously in, in a world that is looking at abstinence as the only solution, um, how do right. people approach that with the family? Well, that's once again, why I made my film one little pill, you can show them that documentary, you can show them my Ted talk, or you can sit them down and say, um, look, I've tried uh, abstinence. I've tried, um, AA or whatever you've tried and just say, realistically, I don't think that I can stay abstinent. I'm 28 years old. Um, I, I love going out with my friends. Uh, it, that, that plan is not going to work for me. And I've researched and found this other treatment that I really believe is going to work for me. And I'd like to try it with your support. And I would love you to, 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 you know, research it with me or to meet my, my therapist or my coach or my doctor, or um, I'd like you to be part of my recovery because I need your support. And I also need you to understand that I have to drink on this treatment and it's not an excuse for me to drink. I'm really motivated to decrease my drinking. I'm really motivated to get this under control. I don't want it to, to get any further out of hand. I know that I've, I've damaged my life in some way or, or hurt my prospects in life due to alcohol. And I genuinely want to try this because I think it's a good fit for me. And you can use whatever uh, uh, reference it is. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about TSM. You will find a drinker just like yourself or very similar to yourself out there. And they probably made a video. There are young people, middle-aged people, older people. There are people who, uh, you know, if you come to one of the weekly meetings that we have that are free um, that we do online, you'll see faces from all over the world and all different ages, both sexes. I mean, people from 20 to 80 and, and it works. It works for habitual drinkers, for binge drinkers. It works for, so you can just, you know, the, the more information you have to, to share with your loved ones, of course, the better, you know, it's, it's important for you to say, this is a science based, this, they've done clinical trials. You know, my doctor is supporting me. You know, the first thing I would do if, if, if I was just starting TSM, um, and there's one of two ways to do it. You could either start it on your own and see if you're a responder and if it works well for you, and then come out to your family and friends and say, look, I don't know if you've noticed that my drinking has decreased, or maybe you're not drinking around them. You can say, you haven't noticed, but I've been doing this privately. I've been on this method for a month and it works really well for me. And I, I want to tell you about it and share it with you because I want to start being able to drink around you. And so this is what I've been doing. That's one way of doing it. Or you could go to your doctor and get the prescription and then 
come out to your family and friends and say, this is something I want to start. Will you help me? Will you support me in doing this? So I, you know, for me, I stayed on it a few months before I told anybody, because I honestly wanted to see if it worked. So there was really, I think there were only maybe one or two people in my life who knew that I was doing it, who knew that I was taking that medication and doing it. So it's really up to you what you feel comfortable with. But I would certainly, I would certainly try and get your loved ones on board. And if they have any, you know, if they, if they, if they suddenly say, oh, it's just an excuse to drink, say, could you do me a favor and watch something that's less than an hour long? Just for me, I'm asking you one favor. And, and have them watch One Little Pill. The documentary will explain to them exactly how it works and they'll see real people on it. And the one thing we offer for clients as well is we, we offer a, a service where we'll work with family members and partners. And because um, a lot of the times that the, we find that when we, if we can speak to them, that sometimes they'll listen to us before they'll, they'll listen to. Of course, everybody wants to hear from a doctor or a professional or somebody who's in a position of authority that their loved one is doing something that's real, you know, that they need that. You know, the thing that, that we want to avoid is, let's say, a, a loved a child or a spouse telling the person on TSM, you know, oh, you, you, what are you doing drinking, you know, because then the person's going to start hiding the alcohol. And I, I've had, you know, I've had clients that have to do that. They have to literally do TSM outside of their house. And that's a horrible way to have to do it. But they have to, because their family has said, if you bring out, if you drink alcohol in the house, you know, our marriage is over or whatever. So they've had to do extinction ses sessions, literally just like stop at a bar, have a drink, you know, brush their teeth. I mean, it's a miserable way to do it, but they've done it that way just to get rid of the cravings that were driving them crazy. So hopefully nobody out there will have to do that, that they will have supportive loved ones. Even if you get one person on your team, it's enough. Just one loving, supportive individual. And if you can't get a family member, get a professional like Bruce to be your okay. team. Team and TSM. <laughs> I'm going to squeeze another five minutes out if I could. Just I, you betcha, I, you I betcha. Up at the beginning. Um, another question that's coming in is, what's the best thing about being in control and sober for yourself personally? Oh, God, there's so many things. Um, when I was on TSM in the beginning and I was compliant and I, I remember just the joy that I felt that I could actually, I went to Italy two years into my TSM journey and I remember sitting around and everybody was drinking during lunch and I genuinely didn't want to drink during lunch, but I was so happy that at five o'clock or six o'clock I could pop a pill and go out with my friends and have a couple glasses of wine. I was so thrilled that I could be normal and I could stop. I, I, I wasn't that person saying, let's have a grappa, let's shoot it. You know, I, I was, I just had the, the little bit of wine, took a long walk back to the hotel and went to bed. I mean, I was back to normal. I was, I was back to the Claudia I was before this, this, this obsessive compulsive issue, you know, ruined my brain for the second time in my life. Suddenly I wasn't waking up thinking about, Oh, when am I going to get to drink? When am I going to, where are we going to go? Is there going to be alcohol? I, all of that stuff was gone. And I was the designated driver during the day, which is, you know, which was wonderful. I remembered the trip. I had, I had so many beautiful memories. I could, I, I was engaged with people. I was present. I was talking to people, meeting people because I didn't have this thing to hide, which is being an addict. It's a very shameful position to be in. It's, it's denigrating. It's humiliating. 
you know, to, to, to carry this thing on your back saying, oh God, if I have a drink, I'm going to get out of control and embarrass myself. And all of this shame and stigma that is attached to being addicted to a substance. So that was very freeing. And then my second act in recovery was quitting altogether. And what that's brought me is just um, a clarity of, of, of mind and a, and a, and a real recuperation in my sleep my sleep is finally back which is something that you know came in and out of my life always fluctuating due to alcohol or hormones or naltrexone or whatever and now I sleep like a baby and it's it's phenomenal and I find that um I handle stress a lot better my my father died April 24th and I think if I was drinking I I would have gone off on a bender and I would not have been able to support him for the last two weeks of his life. And I wouldn't have been able to be there with him present. You know, I would have been sneaking off and drinking to, to, to damper my emotions, but I wasn't, I was there. And I, and I, and I you know, I, I got to spend good quality time with him and my grieving was real. It was raw. It was difficult, especially during COVID-19. I was alone. I was isolating. Um, you know, I, 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 I really had to go through the grieving process and it was cathartic. And because I was abstinent and I was clear minded, I was able to do that in a much, much healthier way than had I been drinking. So there's so many things that I'm grateful for, for TSM and for being abstinent by choice. I can't even explain to you. And I, you know, uh, part of me is embarrassed about me being fallible and the other part of me is really happy that I was in a way because I went through these horrific things I challenged a lot of my friendships I I found you know I found some people that stuck stu really stood by me that I will never forget and they're friends for life and I also found out that there were a lot of friends that came into my life that weren't really good people and I eliminated a lot of people and I found out who I was and I'm able to take my experiences, good and bad, especially the bad ones, and really drive it home to people that this is not something to screw around with. This is a life-saving medication. This is a life-saving treatment. And if you don't do it correctly, you're going to go back to the same habits. And you might even relearn the drinking habit worse than before. And that's just a fact, because your brain is going to be so starved for those unblocked emotion those unblocked endorphins that you might even drink more than you did prior so you have to walk into this saying this is like taking a statin for the rest of your life this is like taking a cholesterol medication for the rest of your life this is like taking insulin for the rest of your life if you're going to continue to drink you have to be compliant for the rest of your life this is just your new life it's your new medication you can't do this on a whim or because somebody's forcing you to or do it for a couple months and then get it under control and then quit the medication. No, that's why you've got to be prepared. You have to have always have access to the medication. You have to always have your, your, your support group around you, your loved ones or your professional support, and you have to make a plan. That means if you go on a trip, you can't forget your naltrexone or nalmaphene, all of these things. This is your life-saving medication. Treat it as such. Keep it in a little keychain container. Keep it, you know, with your loved ones and friends and in your car. And really do TSM the best way you can possibly do it because it did save my life. And I'm not, you know, that there's no way that I will ever change my opinion of that. TSM saved my life. I would not be here today had I not been able to do targeted use of naltrexone back in 2009. And 
Can't add anything to that. <laughs> it's a, uh, I'm just absolutely blown away with the process and the, the fact that you've stuck with it for the last 10 years. Um, the impact it's starting to have across here. Um, I just want to say a big thank you as well to Joanna. Um, yeah. Joanna has been amazing with us. Um, so if anyone's in England and you need any support or any information, um, get in touch with myself and I'll put you on to Joanna down in England. Um, if you're in the States, um, is it uh, c3foundation.com? Dot org. Dot org. So it's, dot org. So it's c3foundation.org in the US and then Joanna runs C3 Foundation Europe. Yeah. And the, the Cure for Alcoholism, uh, Journeys is, is a good book as well. Um, like Claudia saying, just get as much stuff around you as possible. Um, mm -hmm. But Claudia was due to come here in April um, to come yeah. and talk. So I'm still going to hold you to that when you come across the next time. I, as soon as we get a vaccine, Bruce, I'm on a plane. I want to go and see uh, Joanna in her hometown. We have lots of plans of, of traveling and doing stuff together. We had some um, trips all organized for you as well. Yeah. <laughs> also you had beautiful weather while i while i wasn't there in april so i'm hoping but as soon as we get a vaccine i'm coming to the uk and i will come up there uh, to scotland bruce and and give some talks and and we'll do what we had planned to do before all this stuff happened yeah and we we genuinely appreciate it the here in scotland i believe i'm the first person that's using the sinclair method um to work with people but if it hadn't been for your videos, your emails, and Joanna, um, none of this would be happening in Scotland. So you're more than welcome. I'm thrilled. I, I am so thrilled that because it, it literally, Scotland, well, all of the UK, there's such a predominantly, there's such an issue with binge drinking and drinking in general that we really have to change the, the face of, uh, of treatment for alcohol use disorder. We need to give people this other option. We cannot continue to just say, go to a meeting. That is irresponsible. It's malpractice. It, it, it is a big difference between peer support and a medical treatment. And, and peer support is not a treatment for a disorder of the brain, nor for a disease. Yeah. It just is not. And it's, it's, we have, it is time to change now and to start giving people options about medications. And, and by the way, if anybody's out there that's used nalmefine or naltrexone and they did not respond to it, which is a very small population piece of the population, there are other medications. Don't give up. There's medications like a camprosate, topiramax, baclofen, gabapentin, microdosing gabapentin. Speak to your doctor. There are other medications that can control cravings and help you with withdrawal as well. So ask a medical professional and get on the road to recovery because let me tell you something, it feels so much better than being having your brain hijacked by this horrible, horrible disease. I wish all of you much happiness and success out there. Like Bruce said, if you have any questions, reach out to either me in the US or Joanna in the UK or Bruce in Scotland. <laughs> no, to be honest with you, the nice thing about this, I had a business years ago and you're always competing with everyone. And the, the thing with this is it's, people need the help and yeah, it's sure not do. about competing with people and it's if someone's nearer and can help out more we'll, we'll just as long as they get the help and the support and that, that's all that matters so. that's all that matters let's let's help those in need okay so thank you very much we'll have you back again if that's okay and lovely we'll definitely have you across to look around the castles and and uh get some history going across here as well so. 
I can't wait. Get that vaccine, baby. I'm getting on a plane. <laughs> Thank you very much. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, it. for listening. Thank you so much for joining in. It was so much. It was just terrific. I'm talking about my favorite subject. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks. Bye. Bye, Joanna. <laughs>